This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Walk, therefore, while you have the light, that these aspects of the darkness do not come upon us. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Jean Gerson in March of 1415. It was preached at the Council of Constance in Germany. And we're going to go ahead and make a caveat here real yes. quick. He is uh, from France, and I don't think we're probably pronouncing his name correctly. So forgive us uh, for that. But we're going to call him Gerson for the rest of the episode, and hopefully that's close enough. So this sermon is unusual, even for our show and the fact that we're taking things hundreds of years ago and bringing them back to life. This is still kind of an unusual one. Uh, If you're new to the show, we don't really do this every episode, but once in a while, we feel the need to kind of talk up front about what's going on. Uh, When we have sermons and preachers on the show, this doesn't mean we endorse everything about them. It means that this sermon has truth and there is great history here, and we wanted to share that with you. Gerson does not have a perfect theology that you would agree with today. He preached this 100 years before the Reformation. So, of course, his view on God is going to be different than ours in the 21st century. He lived on a, he didn't, we, we live on a continent that he didn't even know existed at the time. And do you realize just how long 600 years ago is? The Byzantine Empire was still around. They were still doing crusades. Which is why it's actually remarkable that we can actually gain truth and learn from sermons this old. It shows how concrete and real our faith is, that something can survive from that long ago. But again, we just want to put up front that we don't endorse everything about Gerson. All right, Troy, who was Jean Gerson? It's a little, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do the French, not, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but he was born December of 1363 in Champagne, France. He was a pretty straightforward theological prodigy. He was raised in uh, a God-fearing home, a huge family, 12 kids, seven of which went into ministry of one way or another, went into religious life. So he was in the majority with his siblings as far as going into theological studies. He was very academically gifted. He went to college at age 14, and after several years, he focused on theological studies there. One thing that's different, I think, about Gerson is he never really forgot his roots. His family had to sacrifice and work hard to pay for him to be able to go to school. His, you know, family were peasants and it wasn't, most of them didn't get to get educated quite like he did. And so he would write back these letters to uh, his different family members, especially to his sisters, telling them the things that he was learning about God. And I think because of this, he never really uh, got caught up in academia in the same way. Some people would kind of become very prideful, puffed up, and they would want to put it in terms and not really worried about whether this stuff was accessible to everyday people. But Gerson always showed an interest in taking what he was learning at school and making it and putting it in a way that anybody could understand where he was coming from. Now, as he was rising through the ranks and studying, this really big event happened that uh, is really old. We don't think about it anymore, but there was this schism where two different people were named Pope. 
and this becomes known as the Great Schism or the Western Schism. But basically, the Pope had not been living in Rome for 70 years. They brought him back to Rome. Uh, they announced a new Pope, and the new Pope did not get along well with the people in Rome, the Cardinals. So they all went back to the place where he hadn't been living and elected a new Pope. And now there are two Popes, and this was for 40 years the way it was. Now, it's, it's very hard for us to try to get into that mindset, for us to understand what it was like back during this era. Uh, the Pope is one of the most important players on the world stage, pretty much the highest authority in the land at the time. You, you've got to remember this is pre-Great Reformation. This is 100 years before the Great Reformation. So when people think of the church, when people think of God, when people think of religion, they think of the Catholic Church. We th they think of the Pope and having the leader of the church now thrown into this confusion with two popes. I mean, imagine us having two different presidents. Uh, now imagine that president is the one who's supposed to go to God on your behalf. Like that, that, that introduced that that complicates how <laughs> how the religion is is practiced and how it is implemented. So they tried to remedy the, the situation. There was one council after another. There's, there's a lot of different meetings, a lot of different councils put together, tried to fix this issue. One council was trying to get them both to quit. Uh, another in Pisa decided to elect a third pope, which I, I don't know why. I mean, I guess a, th a third pope, I don't know how that would help the situation but so now there's now there's three popes actually uh during this time that that is my favorite part of the story as they said like oh we got i literally in my mind it's like we got a rat problem let's throw another rat in there and see if they can figure it out better now i i know that's not what it was but just the idea that a third pope would fix the two pope problem so imagine going to school for theological studies and this is all happening. And then imagine that the king basically made it a rule that you couldn't talk about the schism while you were there. And he's there. This goes on for 40 years. So 10 of those years, he's in school. He's going to university. He's learning about theology, but he's not able to talk about any of the stuff that's happening with the popes. To me, it would be like if you were a political science student and for 12 years there's an election happening and you're never allowed to mention it in any of your classes. I just, that would drive me crazy, right? But that didn't actually mean Garrison was, at, was completely out of luck with the Pope thing because while he was still pretty young in his career, his school actually uh, sent a group, a convoy to one of the Popes to deal with a faculty issue. Some of the pa faculty had begun teaching that the Virgin Mary was not sinless, and uh, Garrison was a part of a group to basically figure out, you know, do we have to do we have to excommunicate these people? Can they stay teachers? What do we do? And I'd love to say our guy Garrison here was a fighter for the right to teach, and he believed Mary was in sin, and, and she was a human just like the rest of us, but Garrison was a product of his times, and he didn't know if they should be banned, but he definitely thought that the Virgin Mary was without sin, so, you know, that's not something we love about him. But one thing, uh, but this moment where he meets one of the popes is actually kind of a transformational moment in his life. It ends up being a really big deal, and it kind of changes the trajectory of where he's headed from here. Yeah, so he visits Clement VII, who was one of the popes at the time, and this leaves a pretty big impact on him. His time with him and, and meeting with him gets him thinking through a lot of things, and uh, we see this 
change where he begins being very serious about wanting to see reform in the church. He sees a lot of issues with the church. He obviously wants to see an end to this schism that's happening within the clergy. Um, but more importantly, and this is when you know you see him come into the fold of kind of those reformers, those early reformer thinkers, he wanted to see those big theological concepts and that higher academic theology down to the common people. Make it so that the common people can understand what's going on in the church and what's going on in the Bible, which up until this point uh, is something that was a, a huge mystery to the common person. Now, this stuff may not seem like a big deal to us living 600 years later. Most of us have never even heard of Gerson. I had not heard much about this gentleman. Um, but there are a lot of scholars who have thought that if Gerson had been listened to and people had done the things he wanted to do, there would have probably been no Reformation. Like his ideas were good, and if they had just kind of implemented them, those would have been enough compromises to save the Catholic Church from the much greater schism it would have 100 years later. Now, his theology wasn't perfect. We said that at the top of the episode, and we want to go back. He was considered a bit more mystical, and on the one hand, he thought the scholastic way of learning about God wasn't great, that there were too many people spending, times in, spending time in books, treating their relationship with God like it was just a textbook, and learning a bunch of stuff in Latin, and not really bringing it down to people on a everyday stance. And I think that was a, probably the right way to look at it. He saw that the Bible, the relationship with God, to be much more spiritual than that. But he also went a little bit too far in that other direction, too, where he began, began to believe, basically, that all of the relationship was spiritual and that, in fact, if you get to the right place, your soul and God could kind of merge. And we would not endorse that here at Revive Thoughts. So I want to make sure that you know that that was something at one point he does teach. Um, but I think at the time, if you were living in that place where all these people are stuck on textbooks and all these people are kind of living a stuffier life away from the common man, he had the right idea in trying to bring back the spiritual, no, this stuff matters for all of us and we need to bring the heart back to God. Again, I think he went too far, but his, I, I want to say, and just 600 years later looking back, I want to say that his heart was probably in the right place. Yes, now let's talk about the Council of Constance. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about how this event uh, becomes what he's most known for. In the year 1414, uh, they decided they need to have one pope once and for all. The Holy Roman Emperor, who was one of the three popes at this time, put together this council to come up with one pope. And this council was kind of a mess. It, it did not go according to plan. It lasted four years. It was a simple concept to start off with. Each main party would get one vote, but by the end of this council, four years later, there were lots of different groups voting, and the Holy Roman Empire, the one who started this council, was trying to dissolve the entire thing because it had run astray so bad. Now, another one of the reasons that this council was formed, and one of the things that they also spent a lot of time discussing, were their views on two men, and these two men were John Huss and John Wycliffe. Those two names I'm sure you probably recognize more so than Jean Garçon, but these two men had this idea at the time of translating the Bible into everyday language. We always do this, but just take a second to remember what life was like back then. Uh, 
for starters, are having a council about translating the Bible into everyday language, which we literally spend now like councils are coming together. Like, how can we translate the Bible into more languages? So we were very different time period. Uh, the Hundred Years War was happening. We haven't even talked about that at all. But Gerson lived in Paris and France. So that was a war between France and Britain. He would have been kind of living around that. There's three popes which are basically the world leaders, and they just keep getting more of them, and they're multiplying. Uh, the world was crazy for them. And I think we say that on every side. Man, it must have been crazy to live back then. Maybe it just always feels crazy. I don't know. But I know right then, Garrison was living through a time of just weirdness. The Council of Constance uh, gets to this one pope, but it doesn't happen quickly. And along the way, they also agree to execute John Huss. And our guy Garrison is a part of that. He approves it. And the reason he approves it, from what we can tell, is he was so fixated on bringing the church together, ending the schism, getting us back to one pope, getting some reforms pushed through that he was pretty much willing to kind of make friends with people that were really upset with John Huss. And that's the direction it went. Uh, Garrison ends up being kicked out of France due to some of his criticisms during this council, too. He really went after the idea of popes are not these absolute god figures, but he really pushed forward this kind of idea that popes would be kind of kept in check by uh, councils so that this wouldn't happen anymore and that there would be more of a constitutional monarchy. He was really pushing forward some very uh, good ideas for his time. And the kings that heard about him didn't really like it and kind of kicked him out of France for it. So now he's eventually let back into France when the king dies, and he starts a small school in Lyons. And the school was poor, and he really wanted poor children to learn about God. And so he would say that the price of admission was just pray for this poor old soul named Jean Garçon. And if you pray for him, you can come to school and learn to read and write and hear about God. Now... In the middle of the Council of Constance, there was this part where everything just literally looked like it was going to fall apart. It looked like the Great Schism was going to be permanent, there would never be an end to it, and that there would be always more than one Pope. And it was right in that moment um, when Jean Gerson gets up and preaches the sermon you're about to listen to. And it really did look bad, by the way. This happened two days after the Holy Roman Emperor, one of the three popes, ran away and he started his own council where he was going to go against this other council. Things were looking, people were giving up. They didn't want, they didn't see a point. And he gets up here and says, hey, we're going to talk about walking while you have the light and sticking with God while you still can and making those right decisions. And this sermon ends up being the turning point where people go, you know what, we can end this thing. And it takes another two years, but it helps solve the problem that they have. And even though Gerson didn't get the reforms through that he wanted, he did get some things to be better and he did do his best there. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. This is Christ's command, fathers and true believers, who are enrolled not on bronze tablets, as happened among the Romans in the past, but in the book of life. Christ's command, I say, comes from the twelfth chapter of John, and is sung in the gospel of this Saturday. Hear it and obey. Walk not with bodily steps, but with those of the mind. Walk from virtue to virtue while you have the light. What sort of light? Let the true light reply. And this is his answer. He that follow me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Be present when we call upon you, Lord Jesus, brightest son of justice. Scatter earthly clouds and burdens of trouble and shine in your splendor. 
For without you, the mind dwells sunk in a deep pit, and bereft of its proper light, it tends to journey into outer darkness. That this may not happen, we must humbly approach you, most glorious virgin, our mediator, advocate, and intercessor, who art called by interpretations of your name at one and the same enlightened and source of enlightenment. And by what light? Truly by the light of grace. By that you are enthroned in such a way that the apocalypse calls you woman clothed with the sun. We humbly beseech you to pour out upon us your abundance, saluting you and saying Ave Maria. Walk while you have the light lest darkness come upon you. That light, most distinguished fathers, I repeat once more, that light is God, who is glorified in the council of the saints. As the psalmist says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be held in reverence of all that are around him. We hold to this infallible promise of his, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The psalmist saw this when he sang, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. And we see in this assembly of the upright the unfolding of the mighty work of God, the freely given and scarcely hoped for way of resignation. So when God has done all these things to please himself, and that he may be glorified whose delight is to be with the sons of men, how may he obtain greater glory than in a council of the upright? For his praise is in the church of the saints. You, fathers and lords, true believers and pleasing to God, are required to behave so as to constitute a council of saints and upright men. God has placed you in the world as true lights. You are the light of the world, he says. If ever it is your role to purge and illuminate others and to make them perfect, it is now especially when this holy convention is met, when the assembly is brought together in one place where the church is assembled, the spirit immediately rejoices, raising its eyes in what is happening, seeing all those who have assembled on your behalf that is for your benefit, O Christian people. My spirit observes and rejoices with you and breaks into this song of the church. The citizens of the apostles and the servants of God are here today, bringing light to their fatherland to give peace to the peoples and to set the Lord's people free. And how will they free them? By urging and crying out, Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness come upon you. The darkness of divisions and schism. The darkness of so many errors and heresies. In a word, the horrible darkness of so many vices that pour out of the church's wretched body in a limitless tide. Walk, therefore, while you have the light, that these aspects of the darkness do not come upon us. Thus will you have light, most enlightened fathers, Christ, who is truly in this place, our Emmanuel, in other words, God with us. And this is his most certain promise. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. It is that God, who is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, and to be had in reverence of all that are around him. And Lord, it is well said that all things are around you, since, like an intelligible sphere whose center is everywhere, and whose circumference is nowhere, you are everywhere.
shut out by nothing, shut in by nothing, neither raised up above anything nor cast down beneath anything, truly greatly to be feared, full of glory and exalted above all things forever. So now, fathers and true believers, to this end, that God may be glorified and the church may be purified, the famous University of Paris, the nurse and lover of all those things which concern Christian piety and sound doctrine, has now, following the example of the most Christian king of France, its most respected father, sent its spokesman in quest first of all those policies concerning the church's peace, next those concerning its faith, and third and last of those concerning its character and liberty. For this holy senate is chiefly directed to these three goals— Yesterday evening it commanded through its ambassadors present here that I should speak in its name this morning in order to declare the truth about those things which appear to have been done by this holy council. No one, I think, will be surprised if I was apprehensive about this instruction. Conscious of my own inadequacy and the limited time of preparation, nevertheless trusting in God whose glory we seek, mindful of my past studies in pursuit of truth in these matters, as well aware of the wishes of the king and the church of his kingdom, I desired to obey the command of my famous mother, whose law I cannot disregard. Admonished by the wise one and like an obedient son, I have tried to enter my task, with the understanding that everything to be said is humbly submitted to this council of holy men for their direction, either by way of acceptance or correction. The first problem is to keep the sequence of what has been said clear and short because nothing is long if put together in orderly fashion. In the meantime, having broached the theme, let us turn our attention to what has been said, that God is he who is greatly to be feared in the assembly of saints and to be had in reverence of all who are around him. Let us fix our mind on that text from the psalmist, for fear we stray too far afield. For if I am not mistaken, we shall see there are fourfold causes of this holy senate, that of its efficient, formal, final, and material cause. If anyone wants to know the efficient cause, that is clear enough. God, greatly to be feared. It is by his impulse, mercy, inspiration, influence, that the church is now brought together. Just as the psalmist, lifted up by the Spirit, prophesied in song, it is God that gathereth together the outcasts of Israel and gathered his elect from the four winds, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Only let us pray that he who has begun this work perfects it. O sacred assembly, lift your eyes round about you and see. All these are gathered together. They have come to you. May it happen to you as was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Then shall you see and flow together and your heart will fear and be enlarged. If it is enlarged, surely will not God fill it with his Spirit. Next, the formal cause is this very bringing together or association of holy men formed and modeled in the Holy Spirit, the form and exemplar of our acts, who is the bond and connection linking separate members of the saints and making them one. The Church recognizes this, when it asks on its own behalf, gathered in the Holy Spirit, that it may not be disturbed by the assault of any adversary. If 
anyone goes further to ask the final cause of this holy assembly, that surely it is that God, greatly to be feared, should be glorified. As it is said in the words of the Apostle, do all to glorify God. This is the straight and effective path to obtaining all that we wish, so long as we first seek His glory. He gave this to be understood when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Finally, all those who are around God can be taken as the material cause, of itself unformed. For just as men, by falling into schism, as a result to form in some way or another God's creation, since according to Plato and Aristotle, man is the end of all things, so it is necessary that all things are modified according to the requirements of their end. And thus, by contrary argument, everything should be reformed by this council of holy men, the Lord beginning and shaping the work and bringing to it its final conclusion. For thus does the church sing about Christ's precious blood. The earth, sea, stars, and heavens are washed in that flood. For that reason, it is right in the next instance to see by which title the irresistible authority shines out from and reposes in the efficient cause, which is God, greatly to be feared, from whom is the measure of all things. In the formal cause, the model unity is what shines forth, that they might all be one, as you are now in this council of holy men, and it in God, through whom all things are numbered. Spiritual advantage is what shines forth in the final cause, that God might be glorified, in whom everything is weighed. Finally, in the material cause is concluded everything that is to be united and reformed, of all things, that is, everything around God, so that they might be reformed, God willing, in number, weight, and measure. All things of whom, hence man are unity and measure, all things through whom, hence species, truth, and number, all things in whom, hence order, goodness, and weight. By that weight, everything flows back to its cause, which gave it its being. But the first of these three capacities correspond to the Father, second Son, and third the Holy Spirit. And the foundations are established on a solid quadrangle. We can build on it a Pythagorean quaterion, that is a fourfold wall or structure of conclusions. And we can say, for the first conclusion, this God, greatly to be feared, is glorified in this council of holy men, because he offers it sufficient and infallible authority as its efficient cause. That is the first foundation. Again, for the second conclusion, God, greatly to be feared, guides and attracts all Christians in common to the unity of one true head as the formative and model cause. That is the second foundation and the first basis of reform. Further, for the third conclusion, God, greatly to be feared, wills to be glorified thus in this holy council of holy men that in all things may turn particularly to the honor and preservation of his law and faith, without which no one can please him. That is the third foundation and the second basis of reform. Last of all, the fourth conclusion, God, greatly to be feared, is prepared to grant through this council of holy men to all creation, and especially to mankind, a measure of the beauty, glory, order, dignity of reform, 
with suitable provision against those who continue not in upright behavior, but in the treadmill of vice. That is the fourth conclusion and the last foundation and the third basis of reform. The sequence could stop here at this stage of the argument, but the words of my text invite another way forward since they are based on the metaphor of light. Let us go back then and place before us the light of the divine precept, because the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening to the eyes. As Peter speaks of it, that is the light of God's law above, so that placed on a candlestick as God commands, it may give light to all that are in the house. That house is the church, or this holy council acting in its stead. And the very light of the truth of the gospel, as a consequence, pours abroad and scatters twelve considerations, like so many brilliant rays of particular truths shining and sparkling. Let us take first, indeed let us point out with, as they say, a finger. Let us take first the light of the Apostles' Creed, in which is said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Why giver of life? Surely one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One, because of the bond with the head. In the first place, Christ and his vicar, the supreme pontiff. Holy, because the communion of saints and the remission of sins, of which more on later. Catholic, that is universal, because no pilgrim on earth is free from obligation to it. Apostolic, because it is founded on the teaching of the apostles and prophets, by whom the Holy Spirit spoke and it will endure through the succession of similar sons. I am certain that no one who wants either to be held or called a Christian will claim that he is left in darkness with this light. Let us add a further word about other light of which the Apostle speaks, not a dissimilar one to this light. Endeavoring to keep unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. And later on in the passage, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints in the work of the ministry, for edifying the body of Christ, till we all come in unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And later again, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, who is the head even Christ, and from whom the whole body fitted jointly together and compacted by that which every joint is supplied, according to the eventual working in the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of love itself. Thus says the Apostle in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4. And there is much more to the same purpose in Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, in 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, and in Romans, chapter 12. Now this comparison of the real body to the mystical body brings much light to those inquiring for the truth. Not only in the writings of philosophers like Aristotle and Plutarch, but also in theologians, especially Paul. As we said before, twelve considerations are to be derived from the light of this teaching in the Creed and the Apostle, like so many rays of the brilliant truth. 1. The unity of the Church consists in one head, 
Christ. It is bound fast together by the loving bond of the Holy Spirit, by means of divine gifts, by qualities and attitudes, so to speak, which render the constitution of the mystical body harmonious, lively and seemly, so as to undertake effectively the exercise of the spiritual aspects of life. 2. The unity of the Church consists in one secondary head, who is called Supreme Pontiff, Vicar of Christ, and it is more creative, more various, more plentiful, and greater than the assembly of the synagogue was, and than of a civil assembly under one ruler, king or emperor is. 3. By the life-giving seed instilled into it, by the Holy Spirit, the Church has the power and capacity to be able to preserve itself in the integrity and unity of its parts, both essential or formal, and material and changing. 4. The Church has in Christ a bridegroom who will not fail it. Thus, as the law stands, neither can Christ give the bride his church a bill of divorce, nor the other way around. 5. The church is not so bound by the bond of marriage to the vicar of her indefectible bridegroom, that they are not able to agree on the disillusion of the tie and give a bill of divorce to him. 6. The church, or a general council representing it, is so regulated by the direction of the Holy Spirit under the authority from Christ that every one of whatsoever rank, even papal, is obliged to listen to it and obey it. For if anyone does not, he is to be reckoned a Gentile and a publican. That is clear from the unchanging law of God set out in Matthew 18. A general council can be described in this way. A general council is an assembly called under lawful authority at any place, drawn from every hierarchical rank of the whole Catholic Church, none of the faithful who requires to be heard being excluded, for the wholesome discussion and ordering of all those things which affect the proper regulation of the same church in faith and morals. 7. When the church or general council lays anything down concerning the regulation of the church, the pope is not superior to those laws, even positive laws. So he is not able, at his choice, to dissolve such legislation of the church contrary to the manner and sense in which it was laid down and agreed. 8. Although the church and general council cannot take away from the pope's plenitude of power, which has been granted by Christ supernaturally and of his mercy, however, it can limit his use of it by known rules and laws for the edification of the church. For it was on the church's behalf that papal and other human authority was granted. And on this rests the sure foundation of the whole reform of the church. 9. In many circumstances, the church or general council has been and is able to assemble without the explicit consent or mandate of a pope, even duly elected and alive. One instance among others is if the pope is accused and is summoned to hear as a party to the dispute, the decision of the church under the law of the gospel, to which law he is subject, and he stubbornly refuses to bring the church together. In other cases where serious matters concerning the regulation of the church fall to be decided by a general council, and the pope stubbornly refuses to summon it. 
Another, if it has been laid down by the general council that it should be brought together from time to time, and other kinds of situations where there is reasonable doubt about the disputes of several clements to the papacy. 10. If the church or general council agrees on any way or lays down that one way is to be accepted by Pope to end the schism, he is obligated to accept it. Thus he is obliged to resign, if that is the prevailing opinion. And when he goes further and offers resignation and anticipates the demand, well, more especially is he to be commended. 11. The church or general council ought to be particularly dedicated to the prosecution of perfect unity, to the eradication of errors, and to the correction of erring, without acceptance of persons. Likewise to this, that the church's hierarchical order of prelates and curates should be reformed from its seriously disturbed state to the likeness of God's heavenly hierarchy and in conformity to the rules instituted in earlier times. 12. The church has no more effective means to its own general reformation than to establish a regular meeting of general councils and not forgetting the provincial ones either. This sermon is old, and this sermon is preached to men dealing with a very different time frame than ours, but I still think this idea of walking while you have the light, you have a limited number of time. You know, it kind of goes back to our last episode, Theodore Kyler talking about the value of human life and that moment that you have. It's kind of a theme among, I think, a lot of the Revive Thoughts episodes where this moment of time matters, and whether you end up being somebody that people remember, or more importantly, that God remembers and has a legacy there for or not, really matters what you do right now. You have the light. Jesus said, further time, you can walk and do good. And there will be a time when that is over. And uh, and Garrison really pressed it on these men that what they were doing was super important. They shouldn't give up on it. And I think that's true for all of us, too. We may not be dealing with giant pope issues, but in our lives, we are dealing with things. And we need to remember that we have the light for now. We had the chance to love our neighbor now, to tell someone the gospel now. But there will be a time when that is over, whether we leave or Jesus decides it's over, one way or another, that will come to a close, and anything after that, we won't be able to have that say anymore. So let's make that difference and live like we're like we don't have the light much longer. Special thanks to Eric Claussen on this episode of Revive Thoughts for partnering with us here. Eric Claussen is a pastor in Orange County, California. He graduated from the Concordia Seminary in St. Louis with a master's degree in theology and church history. He hosts his own podcast called The Faithful Forebearers, which tells great stories of Christian men and women throughout history, including people like John Huss and Jean Gerson. Check out our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for today's episode and all of our episodes here on Revive Thoughts. Here at Revive Thoughts, we want to bring you history's greatest sermons, and that means bringing you big names like Charles Spurgeon, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Calvin, people who we know very well through history, but we also really enjoy taking these names like maybe Jean Garrison, maybe Theodore Kyler, maybe people you weren't really as aware of or didn't know their story and bringing you sermons from them as well. We think God... 
uh, you know, has a place in the kingdom for both of these kinds of people. And we want to bring that out in Revive Thoughts. So we would love it if you could share this episode, tell people about it. Maybe maybe it won't reach your friend like Charles Spurgeon was, but actually maybe it will. Maybe they'll go, you know, I've heard of Spurgeon, but I've never heard of this guy. Who is this person? And that might reach a whole different group of people too, which is kind of cool. Also, it's just really great when we can learn lots of church history and be really well aware of it. Because I think as Christians, it makes us stronger in our faith and helps us to explain where we come from. And when we are challenged or discussing the stuff like that, we have a more just a, quite a wider range of topics that we understand and be experts in. So if you could tell others about this episode, maybe share it on social media. And while you're on social media, go ahead and give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if you aren't already there. But yeah, go ahead and give us a share or tell a friend in person or send them a little text with this episode. And who knows, maybe they'll like it. Maybe we'll give you something to talk about next time we see each other. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.